this is Winnipeg's police chief. His name is Danny Smythe. The demand for service is outstripping the resources that we have. Police Chief Danny Smythe says in the last 10 years, there's been a 46% turnover rate in their call center. The turnover in the PSAP is, is unlike any other area of our service. And it's not likely unique to Winnipeg. There are so many issues that police services are having to deal with across this country. Chief Smythe is also president of the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, and he joins us this Friday evening. Chief Smythe, good to talk to you. Welcome. Uh, good evening, Richard. Nice to be with you. You know, I, 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 w- I was listening to that story and thinking that, yeah, in communication centers, it's, it's tough here in the city of Winnipeg. I think of, um, unfortunately, this community um, maybe in, you know, a record when it comes to, to homicides in 2022. But I also think of some other communities on the prairies and throughout the, this country coming out of the pandemic. And from that national picture that you get, can you give us a, a state of safety in, in this country right now? Well, I think uh, you have a lot of dedicated men and women that are, that are really trying their best to meet the needs, the p- public safety needs, uh, we, like everyone else, have, have had a really challenging time through the pandemic. And, you know, we're starting to see that it's it's causing a strain for our own members. Um, having said that, I'm really pleased with what I see, the, the dedication of our members above and beyond uh, here in Winnipeg. But, but I see that across the country as well. Yeah, you talk and and take a moment about the association of chiefs of police because this really you you share best practices but you also talk about okay we're facing this in this part of the country maybe we can give you some best practices to help you there can you help us understand what you folks do because you also uh, advise and and take stands on issues as well well of, of course the association a lot of what we do is about advocating for legislative reform, resource allocation, even policy improvements. Uh, you know, like everyone else, we haven't been able to get together uh, in person for uh, several years now. So we got together as a group for the first time this this past summer in Quebec City. It was very very good to be able to meet in person again. And I, I think we're seeing that in a lot of different institutions now, but you know, a lot of us had to struggle uh, to meet the challenges on our own here with the exception of zoom calls and, and phone calls. Mm-hmm. And, and now we're able to get in a room and really talk about some of the issues. Uh, you know, those issues are everything from decriminalization of drugs to some of the gun problems that we're having. And, and frankly, some of the, the stressors that our own members are working uh, on. So all of these things are better addressed united than, than trying to do it as one-offs. I want to talk to you about all three, and, and perhaps we begin with, with you know, reducing gun and gang violence in Canada. And, and I see that the, the Federal Minister of Public Safety, even today, issuing that report that was chaired by a Winnipeg MP, Jim Carr, on a path forward reducing gun and gang violence in Canada, a whole series of recommendations in that. But we are seeing this, I gather, is it fueled by organized crime and fueled 
largely by the drug trade. Can you give us a sense of of what we're dealing with here? Well, when it comes to guns, we see a variety of things. And, and, you know, with the assistance of the federal government, a lot of uh, different regions have been able to set up uh, firearms investigative uh, units. And we've been able to set up labs to try to see where the guns are coming from. So we're seeing a combination of things. So certainly we are seeing that some guns are stolen and modified. We're seeing straw purchases, which is really law people that are lawfully able to buy guns, but then they're transferring them over to people that shouldn't have guns. And then probably one of the biggest majorities is, is guns that are smuggled in from the United States. So each jurisdiction is feeling some of these things, depending on where you live in the country. Um, you know, we, we see some of this come into play. Lately, we've seen the emergence of a lot more ghost guns, which is sort of 3D printers and uh, parts that are being assembled to uh, to be workable firearms. So it's it's been an interesting process to see. Uh, certainly a lot of uh, support from the federal and the provincial governments to try to address this. And in addressing this, are you seeing, and when you talk with, with chiefs across the country, are they seeing people that are quite willing to use the firearms that it's one thing to have one to, to, to wave it around, but, but are they using them in a lot more frequency now? Well, we're certainly seeing that, that rising trend, you know, to put it in a context from Winnipeg, you know, every day we, we respond to at least five firearms related uh, uh, calls for service. So that's definitely an increase from what would be, normally accustomed to you know places like southern ontario and toronto are seeing a rise in gun violence so it's a concern for all of us across the country and there's variations of it but uh it's it's a pretty similar trend uh depending where you live do we have the capacity within our police services the way it's set up to handle this because you look into the United States and it's, it's a different country, a different gun culture, but we still see guns here. We still see people that are quite willing to use them, but you know, they have alcohol, tobacco, firearms. They've got special units to be able to do this. Do we need that? Or do we have the capacity here in Canada to be able to police this? Well, I think it's not the same as what the United States is facing. They, they're, their gun culture is much different than ours, but the fact that we live next door to them, we're always going to have that influence. I think for us, uh, you know, we are seeing support from the government for police to address this, both at an investigative perspective. You're seeing some of the proposed legislation that would, uh, you know, cramp down on things like gun possession, but also, you know, I think some focus to CBSA at the border uh, will will have an impact as well. Um, you know, we're never going to do away with it all. The United States is a is a country that probably has more than 350 million guns in its country, so some of them are going to find its way here. But it's not the same in Canada. I think we we have the ability to do some due diligence here, and with some coordination, I think we can make an impact. What's the connection between drug trafficking and guns and gang violence? Well, you know, when it comes to guns and gangs, 
you know, drugs seems to be what they mostly deal in. And, uh, you know, guns is just one method for them to enforce their turf and and enforce their areas. So, you know, those things kind of go together. Um, You know, that's why you often see guns and gangs unit being established in different cities across the country. Um, You know, some really good work is being done in that regard. I think between enforcement, education, and uh, intervention, we can make an impact. Staff Sergeant Michael Rowe in this report that I'm quoted from from the Vancouver Police Department says he notices more shots being fired when gun violence is occurring in that city, which could be explained by gang members having easy access to ammunition and high-capacity magazines as well as fully automatic firearms. He's quoted as saying, even recently we had a drive-by shooting of a residence. We noted that over 10 shots were fired in a very short period of time. I believe this is definitely a reflection of the access to more ammunition and high-capacity magazines. So through the advocacy of the organization and through what the federal government is looking and proposing to do here, does this then take a sizable bite out of crime? Well, some of what they're proposing will will definitely have an impact, but I, but I think, you know, it's going to be a multi-lane approach. So CBSA has a role at the border to try to intervene on some of the guns that are coming across. Certainly enforcement in organized crime and gangs is going to have an impact. And we can't forget that we need to also, you know, impact our young people so that they don't get lured into the gang situation. So it's going to be a multifaceted approach. It's not going to be a one, one size fits all. There are different things going on in different parts of the country. Uh, You know, we really have to take a look at what part of the country we're dealing with and, and, you know, supporting the police services that are, that are addressing that in each of the provinces. With us is the Canadian association of chiefs of police president, Danny Smythe. He's also the chief of the Winnipeg Police Service. Chief, there's a recommendation in the report, A Path Forward Reducing Gun and Gang Violence in Canada, and it says that the government of Canada decriminalized the simple possession of an all illicit drugs as called upon by the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police and public health officials in consultations with provincial authorities and other stakeholders while not impeding law enforcement's ability to prosecute the trafficking of illicit drugs. How important is it that this is the path taken in this country? Well, two things there. I, I think there will always be a role for police to go after and enforce the laws against organized crime. That's bringing in a lot of the drugs that are impacting our communities. But at the same time, for people that are addicted or using drugs, we don't want to criminalize you know, their activities. And and I I think you're seeing uh, a movement now to recognize that the decriminalization of small possession of drugs is, is, is part of the solution. I think uh, harm reduction, having safe consumption sites and having safe supplies, that's all part of the solution. I think for people that are on the using end of, of the equation you know, we're seeing, you know, that's something the CACP has been advocating for for some time. We've been uh, able to provide our advice to the to the federal government on this. And, 
You're going to see a pilot project begin in 2023 in BC, where we're going to we're going to test that and and see how that works and see if it uh, is something that we can expand beyond BC. Do we all have to wait for that, or should other jurisdictions? And I'll localize it to here in Manitoba and Winnipeg in particular, where we have our own issues here. And, so I, you know, everybody is saying, well, you know, BC's the shining example. Let's wait until we see what's out there. But I think there's a lot of people in our backyard here and in other communities are saying to politicians and police chiefs, do something and do something now. Well, I think uh, it's important to do this right and to, and to really do this in a, in a phased-in approach. You know, I don't think it would be the right thing to just go across the board, across the country here. I think it's important to do it right. I think BC has kind of been at the forefront of a lot of the issues that have been going on. So I think they're well-positioned to test this and to learn from the experience. And the reason I put it that way, you know, I've looked at cities in the United States, for example, that have tried this. And, you know, cities like San Francisco that have tried similar things I'm not really pleased with some of the approach that they've taken there. So I think if we take a a more measured approach here in Canada, learn from it, learn from the experiences in BC, and then, uh, and then look to expand it across the country. Yeah. San Francisco's had its issues and there was a backlash, but I also look at, you know, what they've done in BC with uh, in Vancouver on on heroin and they've reduced deaths but right now with the fentanyl that's laced uh, and the opioids that's laced with who knows what um, I don't have to tell you that people are dying and and those death rates continue to climb not only in BC but right across the country and you know it comes on police officers to deal with this but these are problems that are really beyond policing well they're complex no doubt about it uh it's it's health related it's it's a social service and and you know there's the enforcement aspect as well uh i think again that bc is well positioned you know i i applaud the government for you know giving them the opportunity and the exemptions that they need to try this but i i really think we need to to see how that works there you know i don't i don't think we need a lot of time but uh, it, it's a pretty complex issue, and I, and I don't think jurisdictions should just go into this without really thinking this through. The, the one thing that I will look for will be the coordination for a safe supply, you know, and that's that's part of the uh, part of the equation there in, in BC. It's not just a consumption site; it's not just a decriminalization, but it's a safe supply as well. So I, I think we really need to take a measured approach to that. What's the future of policing when, you know, you reflect on all your years and when you first started and you think of now and into the future, what's its future? Well, I think it's partnerships. Uh, You know, it's funny. I was, I was talking to my chief of staff earlier today and, you know, we were reminiscing about how police services started uh, here in Canada and we were everything when they first started. We were the, we were the fire service, we were the dog catcher, we were the truancy officer, and police did everything. Um, but I, I think now we're at a point we've become more sophisticated, we, we understand things better, 
there's a reason that we have PAC teams out there where we're partnering with clinicians. There's a reason we're partnering with, uh, you know, so social workers in domestic violence. It, it's the ability to capitalize on the expertise in other, in other professions, but being able to be in the field and, and, and apply those uh, skills safely in the community. And uh, I, I really do think it becomes partnerships, even locally here in Winnipeg, partnerships like the Bear Clan and, and some of the other NGOs that, that operate in the community. Those partnerships are, are golden, and uh, I, I think that's the future. Would you do it all over again? Yeah, it's been quite a ride. And, uh, you know, I uh, started at an interesting time in the mid-'80s, so I saw the explosion of technology. So I've seen a ton of change, and uh, it, it's it's been very rewarding. So, yeah, I would do it again. Chief Smythe, good to talk to you. Thank you so very much. So often you're under the media spotlight, but sometimes that's what happens when you become a chief of police and so, certainly a president of the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police. We'll talk again. Thank you very much, Richard. Have a, have a good evening.